Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a prime resource for evidence-based sexual medicine education for students, practitioners, and the public. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and today we're talking to Dr. Erica Kelly again. Um, Dr. Kelly is a great friend of uh, the podcast. She's an uh, adult clinical psychologist at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland. And it is a uh, clinical assistant professor in the department of OBGYN. She was kind enough to uh, do some prior episodes for sex ed, for sex med, uh, one on the impact of mental health disorders on sexual uh, function, and the other one on sexual assault. And both very crucial if you're going to understand uh, sexual medicine and how to help people. But um, Today's discussion is really based uh, on a um, inspiration that I got going to uh, the second annual Female Sexual Health Symposium uh, called What's Your Floor Pelvic Floor Plan that was put on by uh, Dr. Kelly and her colleagues uh, in the Female Sexual Health Division um, just very recently, March 23rd of 2023. And they brought up some great uh, complex uh, female sexual health problems uh, that caused emotional trauma and really talked a lot about how they all work together um, to help these patients. So thank you, Dr. Kelly, for coming. And I wanted to uh, kind of set the, the pace here for what we're going to talk about today. And uh, by the way, it was a wonderful symposium. You guys did a great, great job. Oh, thank you. We had a great time putting it together, and um, I'm always happy to be here to talk with you. And I and I know next year you even announced that it's going to be on on cancer and and sexual issues. So that's just mm-hmm. something for our listeners to keep in in mind. It's in Cleveland. It's uh, it's around this time of year. Um, very wonderful, very complete uh, symposium. So let's get this discussion started. Um, the, some of the complex cases that you talked about um, was about uh, one woman had a difficult delivery and had a lot of uh, trauma to her perineum. And, and another uh, patient had uh, difficult vulvar difficulties, which included genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And how uh, you talked about how these really caused a lot of emotional trauma in these patients. So kind of help set these uh, up for us. How how does uh, incidents like those problems cause emotional trauma? I think one thing to note here in setting the stage of talking about this is really the importance of understanding sexual function, sexual medicine from that interdisciplinary perspective and from the biopsychosocial model, right? I think we're talking about complex cases, but a lot of times most cases are complex because they have multiple variables here. And so one of my areas of interest is um, the psychological perspective, but particularly the impact of trauma and stress. And to your point, you know, childbirth trauma can often incorporate or um, consist of a complication or uh, traumatic experience at the time of delivery. 
And so we think about even the biologic trauma component. So maybe there is an injury, a birth-related injury that happens that leads to changes in sexual function. Um, and even if that's not present, you someone might experience psychological trauma. And so if the experience of childbirth brought up either a perceived or actual threat of life to the mother, to the baby, that is defined as a traumatic event and can be very overwhelming for our minds to understand and for our bodies to understand and can trigger a lot of psychological response. And again, thinking about this biopsychosocial model, we know that there are psychological components that will affect sexual function. And we can talk about so many ways in which this comes up, but one example of that might be the impact of anxiety. It's very common when experiencing a childbirth trauma or even just distressing childbirth experience to experience anxiety. And there's a lot of neurobiologic overlap between psychologic anxiety and sexual arousal. They really have competing mechanisms and they can kind of get in the way of each other. So that's just one example of a way in which, you know, a traumatic birth experience can lead to changes in sexual function. Um, either it might be an injury that causes biologic changes, physical changes, or it could be, you know, the impact of the psychological component impacting sexual function. Um, the other thing you had mentioned was GSM, right? And thinking about just like the overall experience of such a drastic change in somebody's body and how that can really be distressing. Like the idea that you don't have control over your body in that way and that there's this very drastic change. And we've talked so much in this podcast about the impact or the importance of sexual function and quality of life and overall well-being. And so here's this biologic change that, yes, it's natural, um, but when it contributes to GSM and maybe, you know, pain with sex, um, that can be incredibly distressing. It's an important area of life. And the idea that, again, this, this factor that you, you can't prevent, you know, menopause from happening, those impacts, like that's really hard to accept. I think that's one thing that's hard to accept and comes with a lot potentially of psychosocial changes as well, sort of thinking about identity. Sometimes there's grief um, of the reproductive years and what that means from identity perspective, just so many complex ways really in which it can affect um, overall emotional well-being and impact on sexual function. I, I thought one of the, uh, the things that really inspired me uh, on the other times you've come and talk to us on the podcast. A lot of the trauma uh, were events that happened years earlier. And, um, you know, you might be getting them and talking to them just with a long history of, but the the events that happened that you guys pre pre presented were, were uh, events that were very recent. And these people, didn't seem to have very much problem and were very well adjusted prior to uh, these events. And I thought it was so important how you really spotlighted um, somebody going through a, you know, like harsh delivery and really stopping to ask, you know, are you okay emotionally? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a, such a big, um, thing that then that's really why I really enjoy you you talking about this because I think a lot of our practitioners you know you you have a big injury and you fix it and say well this ought to be okay and I'll see you back in the office 
and and we really don't you know talk to them about that give you know in this lady that did have this birth injury talk for a minute about how you worked with your uh your faculty collaborators to to really get to you know help this woman one thing i will say before answering that question more directly is i think something you're speaking to is really understanding the subjective experience of that patient right like treating the whole patient not the condition and really being mindful of that and something that i say when i talk about trauma is the idea of trauma is in the eye of the beholder it's in the eye of of the person who experienced it Mm -hmm. and a lot of times when we're thinking about medical trauma we can miss that we can really miss it because in our view as medical providers we might see these experiences normal in our daily practice so you know something like a complicated labor and delivery might just be a daily experience for an OB-GYN provider when for this patient that is an incredibly overwhelming, distressing experience. That's not their normal. That's not their day-to-day. And so just being mindful of that component is that it really does matter what the tr- what the subjective experience was for the patient. And that's part of why I had mentioned before, like if there's a perceived or actual threat of life, right? It's, per- it's perception that I perceived that in the moment. It doesn't matter how brief that moment was. Um, or the overwhelming experience of that. So just, again, to kind of highlight that subjective experience. So I appreciate your point about really checking in with the patient about how was your experience with that, right? How how are you feeling about it? What are you thinking about it? Um, and just being able to check in on that is really, really important. Um, and not assuming that, like, because we've had done the surgery or, you know, treated the condition or your baby's alive and healthy, that everything is okay with the mom. So I just appreciate that point so much. Um, So to get back to your question, really, I'm very, very lucky to sit on an interdisciplinary team. Our university hospitals, female sexual medicine division, we've got um, just a variety of disciplines involved, um, psychology, pelvic floor, nurse practitioners, we're just very, very lucky in that way. And we can um, work with REIs. Like we just have such a great, I think, collaborative approach and it is so incredibly important. And so um, I will just comment on that, that I'm very lucky to be in this setting. And that's not always the case um, that that exists. But I think in general, being able to have direct communication with my other providers um, I think one thing that's important too is being humble as a provider and and not pretending that I know everything and not pretending that I can address everything. I think sometimes that's hard for providers to kind of get over, you know. Well, we want to fix everything, don't yeah. we? We just we're fixers, um, yeah. but but we can't fix everything, and I think that's the big point. So yeah, so I think just like that alone, and being very transparent with the patient as well of like my own limitations um, in my scope of practice. But that's the beauty again of having an interdisciplinary team is that okay, I might not be able to address that part, but I know who can, you know. And so that is an important part. Um, but often, what I'll do is, you know, I do try to do a biopsychosocial assess- assessment when there's a sexual dysfunction or the impact of traumatic childbirth or, you know, you name it. Um, and think through from the treatment plan, what can I do from the psychotherapy perspective 
But right off the bat, just really being able to introduce the potential role of other providers. Um, and I can speak very directly with them, set up a phone call. I talk to the patient ahead of time about that, you know, like, hey, it might be nice for us to build in some other providers. Are you okay if I reach out to this person? I think that helps a lot with a warm handoff. Um, if they, you know, if they get in the door with me and if they trust me, they're more likely to trust the referral that I'm sending them to. And so just being able to focus too on the relationship factors is so important and building the rapport and an alliance will help with the interdisciplinary connection so much. So like the transparency, you know, the being humble and honest, um, and then being able to facilitate the warm handoff through kind of opening the door to trust is really important in that interdisciplinary model. I think one of the biggest inspirations for for asking you to talk to me today is just what you just said, is to have that team approach, team-minded. And, you know, you may live in a small community that you don't have, you're not in, encompassed by the team you have, which I will be honest, I was a little green with envy when I was there. But, um, you know, to, to go out and find a team, whether they're in your city or not, um, mm -hmm. I think is so is a, such an important message that I'm hoping our learners and our our practitioners listening uh, can really appreciate and buy into that they can't do everything. I, I was going to ask another question about you know how uh, somebody has a, a recent trauma like like a birth trauma, uh, how does it manifest itself? Because a lot of times people come in for their postpartum. And they're talking about their baby and cooing and eyeing over their baby. But how does this trauma, how will it manifest itself? How can we tease it out as a, as a, a clinician? How can I tease this out and try and judge whether getting help from mm -hmm. somebody like you would be appropriate? Um, I think that there's a lot of ways, first of all, that it can manifest. One model that I like to think about that, that can kind of be helpful in identifying signs is just to understand the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, because I think it just helps understand some of the symptoms that might show up. Not that everybody who experiences trauma is going to develop PTSD, but it's just a helpful way of thinking about it. So when you look at post-traumatic stress disorder, there are four symptom clusters is what they call it, which is relatively unique from a diagnostic perspective. So someone to meet the criteria for PTSD has to have symptoms in all four cluster areas. Um, and part of why I mentioned that too, is there's over 15 symptoms that are listed within PTSD criteria, which just points to the complexity of it, because think about all the combinations you can make with 17 different symptoms. So there really is a very broad range of presentation from the trauma perspective. Um, but going back to those four clusters, we have re-experiencing symptoms. So this would look like intrusive images or thoughts about the traumatic event. This can be a psychological or physical reaction that is similar to what happened during the traumatic event. So a helpful way of thinking about that is just the fight, flight, freeze response, is what is your natural fear response? When you encounter a threat, your body's going to engage fight, flight, freeze. It's gonna to try to fight the bear, freeze and play possum, or flee and run away. 
And so if you see that reaction happen in your office or in the clinical setting, that's a good indicator that there what might that be. What would that look like? Will that, mm-hmm. will that show up like on a pelvic exam? How does that look? It what will that look like? Certainly can. So let's think about each of those, fight, flight, freeze. So fight, the individual could look very angry, can become very angry, very defensive, right? And really back up and start yelling at the provider. Um, so anger can present in the room when trauma is on board. The second one with freeze is more of a frozen kind of paralysis response. Maybe they immediately just look like they're frozen. They're not moving. They stop talking. They tense up, right? And they're just sort of seeming like they're not really present in the room with you. That can be an indicator. So maybe even their eye gaze is not with you. Um, the flight reaction is what looks more like traditional anxiety. They're seeming on edge, anxious, flighty. They might, you know, curl up and back away from you immediately. They have an easily, easily startled um, response. They can look hypervigilant. So maybe, you know, you're trying to communicate with them and they just keep looking at the door. Um, They seem on edge, fidgety. So those are really good indicators um, that that's on board. And one thing that I like to comment on is the individual themselves who's going through it might not really be able to identify that in the moment. It's such, my experience is that trauma responses are often so complex and overwhelming that they're really even hard to understand for the patient. Um, and so if it's under, if it's hard for the patient to understand, it can certainly be hard for the provider to recognize and understand. But I think just thinking about the fight, fight, freeze response, that's likely to get activated in the room if there's an acute trauma response. So they're angry or they're seeming really anxious and easily startled, um, edgy on edge, you know, tension, physical tension happening in the body um, or just that frozen sort of numbing, non-responsive reaction can be pretty good indicator. That's a great explanation. You know, I've got to ask, you know, here now on tape, there's probably a lot written about this um, PTSD. Um, is there uh, articles that are appropriate for l- learners that, you know, not a high level kind of thing <laughs> that um, you could, I want to put something in the show notes because I okay. think that's crucial to understand what you just said. Um, okay. I, I'm an OBGYN and, and I know our uh, American College of OBGYNs they've gone online and uh, encourage us as OBGYNs to develop skills in, in trauma-informed care or trauma-sensitive care. And, and, you know, materials have come out um, for us to be aware of this. And I'm sure there's other societies and other specialties that talk about this. Um, what should we be learning when, when, you know, when you are teaching somebody the basics of trauma-informed care or trauma-sensitive. Give me the basics of that. Um, In my mind, what comes to my mind when I think about the basics is um, thinking about there are five main cognitive areas that tend to get affected by trauma. And if you think about those (laughs) and you think about them in the context of your care, I think this can be helpful. So those five areas that get affected by trauma are power and control, beliefs about power and control. And I can give examples of all of these, but power control, safety, trust, 
esteem, and intimacy. So as a provider from a trauma-informed uh, care perspective, to be able to try to give the patient as much power and control as possible, to ensure a sense of trust, to ensure a sense of safety. So this can be psychological safety, that they're in a safe environment where they can talk about their experience, including a negative medical experience. That can be really challenging to bring up and talk about in a medical setting, right? So ensure a sense of safety. Again, physical safety. This can be even just thinking about the patient is closest to the door and they feel like they have an easy exit. That's an aspect of psychological safety. Um, we're talking about esteem. So thinking about that can relate to self-esteem, but it can also relate to esteem about other people. So trying to sort of rebuild the sense that that individual can really trust the medical community if it was a medically related trauma. Um, and then intimacy. So intimacy, meaning intimacy towards oneself, but also towards other people. And so it just speaks to the importance of a collaborative relationship with the patient right? And being able to build rapport, build alliance. I think that speaks to just the importance and value of empathic listening. So this is something I think like any provider can do. You don't need to know their entire trauma history to be able to do this. But it's, if somebody's telling you, or even just sounding distressed, if they sound angry, if they sound anxious, if they're crying, being able to comment on that and just go, it sounds like you're really sad that that happened, right? Or I can understand how anxious you must feel. Just calling that out and giving a little bit of empathic listening can be really, really powerful. And being able to validate the experience, I think that's just a very accessible tool um, from a trauma-informed care perspective. But I think it's helpful to just think about those five areas. Again, give as much power and control to the patient as possible, that's a big one. Um, communication is key. I cannot tell you how many times it comes up where two factors that come up, especially with birth trauma. One is I felt like nobody was listening to me. I kept voicing how much pain I was in and nobody ever talked to me about it. I found out later from looking at my medical chart that XYZ was happening to contribute to the pain and no one told me that. So feeling like they're not heard, we wanna make sure that patients feel heard and are heard, right? And then the piece of just, Seeming like um, not only was I not listened to, but nobody's really talking to me. The providers are talking to each other and nobody's talking to me. Nobody's explaining to me what's going on. So just transparency in explaining what is going on. You talked about the ACOG recommendations, right? There's the recommendation when doing a pelvic exam of like explain every yes. step of the process yes. as you go. Explain ahead of time and pause. Make sure the patient is understanding what's happening. So just the value of like the transparency, explaining what you're doing and why you're doing it. Don't assume that they know. You have to explain that. That is so powerful. I know we all have limited time with patients, but when you have that opportunity to just be clear in what you're doing and why you're doing it, that can go a long way in establishing some, you know, more power and control for the patient. So that's, you know, the core components for me when I think about trauma-informed care. Something I'd like you to comment on that, you know, that is is going to be your part in helping the patient, not my part. But I I just want to would like to understand uh, better, and I think our trainees would love to understand. You you one of the breakouts you really discussed some of the tools that you use to really 
um, help people get there. And you talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy. Would you talk about what you do as the psychological component to helping people uh, recover? So from a trauma perspective, there are very trauma-specific therapies that exist. So I will, even though these may not be the specialty areas of people listening, but it's just good to know about. Yeah. So there are several different evidence-based psychotherapies for PTSD. And people might receive that treatment, even if they don't meet all of the criteria for PTSD. There's some evidence for their benefit, even if it's subclinical PTSD. Um, But just to name them, there's prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. There's eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, which is EMDR. Mm-hmm. And we have co- cognitive processing therapy, which is um, essentially cognitive behavior therapy, but it actually focuses on the cognitive components I was talking about with power, control, safety, trust, intimacy, and esteem. It helps people understand how their beliefs related to those areas get affected by trauma and how it might be negatively impacting their function and how they can change and re sort of reset those beliefs. So it's a very cognitive focus therapy. I personally do a lot of prolonged exposure therapy. Um, And this is the idea of essentially um, very gradual exposure to safe stimuli that are associated with the traumatic event. So if someone experienced, let's say a traumatic childbirth, we're going to think about, okay, how is that affecting your day-to-day life? And how are you avoiding that? Because a lot of, I think, uh, get through all the symptoms of PTSD, but one of the core clusters is avoidance. And so we think about avoidance as a maintaining factor for PTSD. The individual is probably going to avoid anything that reminds them of that experience, right? So it can show up very obviously, like they might not come back to medical care. They're going to avoid everything that reminds them of that birth trauma. So they're not going to go to medical care. They're not going to show up for their postpartum visit, right? They're not going to maybe look at pictures from their Um, birth experience. They're not going to talk about it. They're going to avoid. So one of the core components of treatment for PTSD is usually reducing the avoidance behavior. So we're actually encouraging the individual to talk about the experience in a safe place and validate that experience so that we kind of decrease the anxiety about the memory itself. So we're allowing them the time and opportunity to, to emotionally process that experience that happened At the same time, we're giving them opportunities to gradually re-engage in um, sort of real-life stimuli, person, people, places, things, um, sight, sound, smells that are associated with the trauma, but that are actually safe. So for example, with a birth trauma, we want to help them tease out what cues got tied in there as threatening that typically we would not say are threatening, like example would be um, the maternity gown that might trigger an anxious response when they see it because they go, I was wearing that the time that birth trauma happened. So that triggers anxiety. I never want to see those again. So we will help them engage in exposure to that. They might hold the gown. They might look at the gown and understand again that that's actually a safe cue. That's not necessarily a threat, but help them tease that out So it has a lot to do with just gradual exposure to these cues that got mixed up in the trauma. And we want to detangle that, disentangle that. Um, And so a lot of times we can, I think, help them figure out a way to even gradually re-engage in healthcare. That's a big one. 
So I say that to medical providers too, is like anything that you can do to allow that to be a very gradual process. So maybe at a postpartum visit, it might not be jumping right into the internal exam or something like that, right? It's just like, let's just sit in the office setting with your clothes totally on and we're just going to talk. And maybe we need a second appointment to more gradually re-engage in medical care. So really anything that can be done gradually is helpful from a trauma perspective and allow the person to feel safe and have enough experience to know that they can cope with that. They have to reestablish a sense of, I can cope with being in this medical setting. I can, I can handle that. I can cope with it. You know, certainly we see some people that, you know, just kind of have a traumatic thing and just say, yeah, that was rough. And then you have people that have, uh, you know, not a good experience and get very traumatized, like, Case in point, you know, a woman that has a miscarriage, she comes in and has a second miscarriage and she's ready to say, I, I'm not going to try a pregnancy ever again. I cannot take this again. Well, why is there a, such a, a difference in, in people? So it's a great question and it points to the complexity, really. Um, we do consider PTSD a disorder of non-recovery, meaning most people are going to have some sort of trauma response. And when exposed to a traumatic event, um, but PTSD is when it doesn't resolve naturally, when those symptoms tend to stick around. So there are some pre-trauma risk factors that can indicate that someone is at greater risk for the more prolonged response. Some of those are a more negative cognitive belief set. So just having a more negative cognitive style, like things are all bad or I'm a bad person or the world is an unsafe place. So that more negative cognitive style is, is more likely to trigger the PTSD, the long lasting trauma response. I see. Right. As since um, there's a personality trait that's called negative affect or neuroticism, that it's a lot of like the negative belief set, um, what they call maladaptive coping styles. So if someone has a pre-existing difficulty with coping with distressing events, that's yeah, okay. a decent indicator. Okay, so these are all pre-trauma. Gotcha. So if someone has not had any trauma experience, those are the risk factors that are likely to contribute. You also would see any pre-existing psychopathology. So someone with a history of anxiety disorders or depressive disorders, those are likely to be um, a risk factor for a more traumatic event. Um, or sorry, traumatic response that's prolonged. Um, and the I just to comment again on like the cognitive component, one way of understanding a prolonged trauma response is again, understanding how that person integrates the traumatic event into their belief set. So I give the example, there's something called the just world belief. That is good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So if I have that belief going into my life, and I experienced this birth trauma, how am I supposed to make sense of that? Right? So I might then conclude, oh, I'm a bad person. Bad things happen to bad people. I must be a bad person. So just thinking about like, people have to integrate this traumatic event into their belief set. And that's really like the faulty integration is where we tend to see the more prolonged trauma response. A healthier response to that would be something along the lines of, changing my belief set to incorporate this event and go, well, 
sometimes bad things happen to good people, right? Or I might not have control over bad things happening and it doesn't have to mean anything about me as a core person. So just the belief set can really play a big role, but really very complex. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm glad we have people like you to help us with that stuff because that 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 really that really is um, that's complex because you know like you said it's just everyday life for us and we go that's what we do we something bad happens we fix it but I think so many times we just forget to check back and make sure that this person is okay and um, mm-hmm. I know in your example at the symposium this particular person just. Uh, wasn't intimate with their partner for just months and it really took them a long time to to regain intimacy so well give us some some parting thoughts this is such an important wonderful uh subject and um again what you're doing with this collaboration is just magnificent and just what what would you your parting shots to somebody out in a smaller community that isn't encompassed, like I said, with practitioners like you are, give us some encouragement <laughs> what to do. Well, there's great resources. So a couple of resources that I would point individuals towards in addition to things like the ACOG guidelines, I would say um, the International Society for the Study of Traumatic Stress, ISTSS, or Traumatic Stress Studies, I apologize, ISTSS. International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, they have great resources available to providers and to patients. So really helpful in understanding, they have videos about understanding trauma, what's the difference between a traumatic event and a distressing event, how do we help people cope with trauma? So they they have great resources. Um, SAMHSA has great resources for trauma-informed care, certainly. I point people to the National Center for PTSD. This is through the Veterans Affairs uh, Medical System, National Center for PTSD. They um, have done a lot of work to try to provide a lot of information for, again, both providers and um, patients. So they have great training resources available. I just really would point in that direction. From the intersection of PTSD and sexual function, there's a great article by Rachel Yehuda and colleagues that talks about the relationship between PTSD and sexual dysfunction. I recommend that. I believe it was from um, maybe 2015 or so. So that's a great resource. And there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. That is a great resource in understanding the impact of trauma and the traumatic event and exposure and how our bodies really just hold that in and how it manifests throughout life. So those are some of my go-to recommendations. Um, And I just encourage anyone to spend a little bit of time getting to understand trauma because it really is complex. And I have found that people who experience PTSD symptoms really might not recognize it as that. And it might feel very confusing and very scary. And so it helps for most medical providers to have a sense of what that looks like and just be able to help label it for the individual and then get them connected to mental health providers who can help. And just on that note too, I would say for um, some of the resources I said, there's often a find a provider link where you can find a psychologist or a social worker or therapist who can 
um, help from the trauma-focused therapy. Well, again, I thank you for your time here today. I, I can only think of, I mean, we could just talk forever. I can't believe our time has just flown. Um, thank you so much. And uh, you're you're such a wonderful resource over there in Cleveland. So thank um, you. You have a wonderful rest of your week. And, and, you know, I probably will hit on you to give us some help again in the future sometime. So thank you again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.